100 meters. Van der Poel behind, Clark with him, Shackman, Balde, Madwa. There's Lombrecht, Trentin, De Marquis and Mollema, but it's the front three we're occupying ourselves with at the moment. This still could be anybody's. We've had one breathless finish already today. We're going to have another now inside the final couple of hundred metres. It's Alaphilippe who takes up on the right-hand side. Look at Van der Poel going from behind, though. Look at Van der Poel on the left-hand side. Mathieu Van der Poel's going to do it. Mathieu Van der Poel, this is incredible. Good evening, boys. How are we on this fine Monday night? Warm Monday night as well. Yeah, balmy. No, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm good. I've uh, done very little since last time, but um, still here, still in the same bed. <laughs> same uniform. Still in the same workload. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've got a special, special edition podcast this evening. Um, we've got Alex Wellburn from Train Sharp who is coming on to the podcast to answer some of our and our listeners' questions, which is very exciting. Um, Harry, would you like to explain who Trainsharp are? They are a coach people who... (laughs) You threw under the bus so much there. I wasn't even concentrating. They're just coaches, aren't they? And then you just pay them money, and then they tell you how to ride faster. Yeah. Do you know some of the... Some of the riders that are on or have been on the Train Sharp roster in the past. Yes, or yes, I know one specifically because it came up my Instagram story today. Adam Blythe, who is retired, granted, but he did win the national jersey. So, and he was trained really by them works. at the time, and he's now just taken up training by them again, which is very exciting for them. Eddie yeah. Dunbar, who starred on Mont Ventoux the other day, leading the Ineos train. Is he the, the massive guy? Road. No, he's the tiny guy. You're thinking of Connor Dunn. Ah. Connor Dunbar. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, Alex, you know, Seb knows him from racing with him and things like that. And a few of the boys we have are in our teams have raced with him before. He's an absolute weapon on a bike. But more importantly, he's an absolute weapon when it comes to science and physiology. Um, He's got a Bachelor of Science in Sport and Exercise Science and a Master's of Science in Applied Physiology. So... We, we're talking to the right guy, guys. It's none of our made-up random science and facts that we found on the internet. It's actually someone who's studied it for quite a long time and have, has read science. It is made-up random facts. Yeah. <laughs> He's the man we read about, and then we make our own versions up and then spread it like gospel. So, yeah, he'll be on. He'll be joining us any minute now, and we'll be able to crack on and find out some answers. Nice. Yeah. Right. So, Alex, did you want to give us a quick brief rundown of your expertise and sort of where your background and where you're coming from so we can have an idea of that? Yeah, of course. How quick do you want it to be? Quick synopsis? Yeah, quick. let's go quick synopsis because I read your biography out a little bit in the intro. Not trying to be stalkerish, but just trying to give as much info as possible. <laughs> No, that's absolutely fine. So my name's Alex Well. I'm one of the performance coaches here at Trainshop. I'm also a physiologist by nature. Um, I have got a 
BSc in sport and exercise science and a master's degree in applied sports physiology. My current kind of research areas are around critical power and the WBAL model, trying to understand fatigue. And I look after the train shop junior team in terms of their coach riders and our Inspire Talent programme. Oh, Wicked. and I will add, I also do... I also do race a bike a bit every now and again. I used to race elite mountain biking. Um, I was lucky enough to be part of the um, part of kind of like the rolling GB squad for kind of cross mountain biking. Um, after a few years of elite mountain biking, um, I decided to swap over to the road and now pursuing all guns on the road at the minute. Well, racing going ahead, obviously, hopefully. Wicked. I had a few people when we said you were going to be on the podcast, we had a few people write in to our Instagram saying that you've torn their legs off at various road races around the south so i thought that was a good endorsement <laughs> <laughs> beachy head so, yeah. classic was one of them apparently to be fair that was one of my season goals so i used to live about five minutes from that loop and that throughout my undergrad um sorry throughout my master's degree um that was my local training leap so all sorts of efforts i had to do i'd just go round and round and there and to be honest when one of those races came up yeah the beachy head classic i decided yeah that's one of the races that i want to you know it was only it was a second cat race i was like yeah that's that's the race i want to kind of i'd like to do well on so yeah i had a i had a good play on that it was a really good race <laughs> it was windy and um we only i only just got him back on the line and that was pretty yeah it was only within oh it was, t- it was touch and go <laughs> so it was good it was good fun that was i think Is that you, the, i um, think you made it hard for quite a few people that day yeah is that the descent so like obviously when we did like the Southlands way and we rode down the road to get an ice cream for the ice cream van it's almost like an alpine style descent like really nice tarmac with a few switchbacks on it is that was that the loop as well on it? i think you go up yeah, so that's that the start one. loop yeah yeah you go up that for the start and then you just do round and round beat your head so you go kind of go towards eastbourne left left back down into east dean and then go up kind of down towards berlin gap and climb back up so you pray it's a tailwind going up there otherwise it's pretty horrific yeah, we rode, um, we did Rustington to Eastbourne and back uh, on the cross bikes. And that was the halfway point, wasn't it, Seb? But there was like a 50 mile an hour headwind that we turned into. And I was just the saddest I've ever been on a bike, I think. Right. Like, we're so far to go. It took us about 16 hours that ride. It can be absolutely brutal. You either go left or right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So, um, Harry, have you got the first question for Alex? It's quite a quite a big one you've got. You've gone for straight in. Uh, so to start off with, we've got a couple of FTP questions. Uh, so the first one being, is FTP a fixed number that goes up and down as you train and rest? Um, so how constant is it? Um, and to follow that, is FTP really 95% of your 20-minute um, maximum test power? Because um, I've heard that it, it's more likely to be kind of 92, 93%, which leads me to think a lot of people are overtraining and not getting the maximum amount of gains that they could do. So the FTP, uh, the holy grail of cycling, all those questions that I must admit, we do get a fair, fair amount of, especially for a lot of people that are new to the sport. So the 95% of your 20-minute power was kind of originally established with Andy Kogan in the kind of early days of using ftp that's why it's called functional threshold power it's meant to be functional in the sense that you can essentially work it out relatively easy and it's meant to serve as a proxy for your kind of 60 minute power originally they used obviously a 40 kilometer time trial but kind of things have moved on a little bit and for most people 95 percent might give you a rough idea 
but for most people it will overestimate your from personal experience with the ethics that i've worked with overestimate your threshold power and to be honest a lot of people don't do the original five minute blowout effort prior to the 20 minutes and quite frankly doing 20 minutes flat out is just it can be quite hell you know if you put that in someone's plan or just the pure thought of doing a 20 minute effort it can be quite soul destroying and the fact is now you know is you're chasing 95 percent of this kind of number you set your goals on this and if you overpace your efforts because you, you go well i want to hit this number rather than going into it kind of a little bit blind and trying to assess your power um in terms of like it overtraining you as such that's kind of a bit of an overused term it's actually a medical diagnosis of overtraining most people either under recover um, and have a bit of burnout you have to be kind of overdoing it for a long period of time to kind of have that almost essentially chronic fatigue um but if obviously if you do miscalculate your ftp it can get, put your zones slightly higher than they need to be which ultimately means you may be then working in zone four if you're meant to be working in zone three and for a lot of people they chase the top end of power ranges you know people think that if you're working at the top of ranges it will give you the absolute most benefit but training is ultimately uh, being about consistent day to day you know it doesn't take into account your fatigue from that day your sleep your kind of stress levels and that's why ftp will naturally fluctuate day to day it's just a term we call kind of biological variation um so to measure it every single day you'd never really be able to do because one that person's really not going to like you if they're doing that every single day. And obviously your mood will influence it. So there's kind of lot, lots of things around FTP. And ultimately, you just need to understand the athlete. What are you trying to assess? You know, the 20-minute test is great for assessing your, well, your 20-minute power. But kind of having a more in-depth understanding of their physiology, it's one of the reasons why we do our lab assessment at Train Shop. So actually, we do a full blood lactate profile, which will establish kind of your upper endurance zones will establish your ftp utilizing the kind of the second inflection point in your blood lactate and then we'll do a vo2 max assessment and a map assessment as well so we kind of get that full in-depth profile into your physiology you know it's one of the reasons here at train chart we kind of moved away from that 95 percent of your 20 minute power we actually conduct our lab performance testing so it gives you a full metabolic blood lactate profile so we kind of get your lt1 which is kind of your all-day endurance pace um then you've got your lt2 that second inflection point in terms of lactate where it's typically around four to four and a half millimoles and we then designate kind of threshold to be around that then we'll move on to our second test where we will do a vo2 max and map assessment so we'll look for the maximum amount of oxygen that you can consume and then we'll take your peak 60 second power from that ramp test, which gives you your maximal aerobic power. And those three pinpoints will give us a full in-depth kind of understanding into your unique physiology. So it allows us to understand what sort of work you need to do, depending on where those markers are in relationship to each other. The kind of the problem then you start to get with the 20 minute all out effort is it just gives you your peak 20 minute power. So it doesn't kind of give that aerobic anaerobic contribution. You kind of don't understand the VO2 max side of things. So it's kind of really only ultimately useful for serving as a proxy, which I wouldn't recommend if you have other testing methods available. And people just get far too hung up on that performance number. Ultimately, cycling is a lot much more in-depth sport. There's tactics, there's race day performance, there's how you execute it, how smooth you are in the wheels. And just having high numbers doesn't automatically mean you're going to 
win bike races if you don't know how to use those numbers i'm sure we've all been in crit race or anything like that where someone goes on the first lap and is absolutely drilling it flicks your elbow flicks their elbow at you and you go no i'm not coming through (laughs) i'm racing i want to go as fast as possible for the least amount of effort it's some training where you want to create that stimulus so that's kind of one of the kind of caveats with that 20 minute power people get very fixated on it and here's the train shop we want to fully understand that athlete so our kind of testing will also work all around on what your goals are what determines performance are they so you know a criterion race uh, versus an ultra endurance race we might include some different field testing to assess you know your sprint repeatability not going to do that for an ultra endurance runner but we might then do a kind of a long steady endurance ride to assess your cardiac drift so it's all about making it specific to the individual and that's what ultimately training needs to be. It needs to be tailored around you, your goals, your demands, your time commitments. You know, that's why we tailor in bespoke plans and we kind of really thrive off building that athlete-coach relationship. And part of that is to try and educate the athlete why we are testing what we are testing for, really. So would you say, Alex, when people set FTPs like on Trainer Road or on Zwift and stuff like that, would you say, would you recommend like a 10-watt difference either side of that FTP to sort of give a a rough zone for when you're you know on a good day or a bad day like where you where you'd want to be when you're training well ultimately that's why training zones are zones so you're not going to do your zone three efforts at exactly let's say 250 watts you know depending on i think it might be 230 kind of to 245 or 250 obviously depending on how high your ftp is if it's higher those ranges will be bigger of course and that's why you have ranges so some days it's okay to work at the bottom end of the target and then other days if you're feeling okay it's okay to work at the top end of the target you know this is why we don't prescribe actual you know you need to do 233 watts exactly because that's just not that's not really not possible with athletes you know you could if you really really wanted to but what we want to see is consistency day in day out week on week month on month because cycling is an aerobic sport it's not just one magic session it's it's weeks on months on years and you know fixating on that one single number will just kind of it will cause more stress than anything yeah and like you say people you know everyone's probably had it when you've got like a ramp test or a ftp test coming up it's like it defines your self-worth in so many ways like on a bike and i'm sure said probably hasn't had this because he doesn't care about these things but i'm sure harry has felt has felt it like you know when you get on a bike ready to do that test and it's like you've got that number in mind and if you don't reach it then everything's ruined the 12 weeks of training you've just done is out the window and it's just not that's just not the case is it at all absolutely and you know i've been guilty of it in the past where you know i've had this set number there's been no logical reason why I want this number, but I do, and I'll chase it. And, you know, it might mean you go overboard, you know, you might overpace the first five minutes to the next 10 minutes, you're absolutely hanging and it starts to decline in the last five minutes. You just say to yourself, why do I even bother? There requires a lot more kind of mental strength. You need to pace it. That's why we like our lab testing is it's your body's response is what, what is what we are measuring. You don't have to essentially think about it. You know, people come into the lab, yeah, and they come in kind of like, you know, we kind of call it an assessment. It's just assessing where you are now. It's a line in the sand. It means that all your zones are bespoke for you. So it means you can train knowing that everything is correct. And so you can progress and move forwards and hopefully next time, then we assess it again and see how much you've improved. And if you haven't, then we reflect on it and understand why. But all the time, you know, most of the time that 
of Excel. So we kind of then work on, okay, have they responded? What sort of sessions were they responding well from? Can we push that response even more rather than just fixing on this, you know, 20 minute effort? If you're a time trial rider doing a, you know, a hard 20 minute effort, that is useful for you because you'll be racing, you know, you know, if you're super fast, you'll be kind of going for your kind of your 17s, 18s, 19s, or kind of your long 20s. So that is applicable to you, whereas a criterium rider might not, or kind of an ultra endurance rider might not as useful. So it's all about, again, understanding why you're testing and understanding the athlete. So what would be your one main bit of advice for FTP for people who don't have the luxury of coaches and all the experience and advice that you, you can give just for a standard sort of person, like who maybe are doing FTP tests and stressing about those things. What sort of, what's the key point for them to take away? I mean, if you are kind of going to do the 20 minute test is just to have a bit of a plan to pace it i i tend to suggest splitting it into kind of three parts use the first five minutes to settle into it build up to kind of the power that you probably are chasing try and hold it then for that 10 minutes and then try and drive on for the last five rather than go warm yourself into the effort rather than going all in for the first kind of couple of minutes you kind of get five minutes in and think why have i even done this more often than not you know it's just settle into the effort first don't even look just start the time and don't look at it just kind of get into that flow got into that rhythm because those are sort of the efforts where you want to be pushing on towards the end feeling stronger like you're in charge of the effort like you're in control rather than hanging on for you know it's that fine line between you're in charge and hanging on for well for life really (laughs) is it on the one of the grand thomas books he mentions him rob hales when when grand thomas first went to the velodrome rob is it rob hales the, yeah. Rob, yeah, he, he was saying to him, "Don't chase the pain; it will come." Sort of like that. That's sort of <laughs> it will find yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, also understand that you know, some days you can have good days, and other days you're going to have bad. If you don't have the best of days, you know, try to understand what might have influenced that. You know, have you stressed about it? Did you get enough sleep the night before? You know, you're worrying for it, or have you just decided to do it straight off a hard block? You know, you got to understand that. Obviously, training is about creating almost a fatigue so your body responds to it so obviously if you are going to focus on a test you might want to taper a little bit and come out of it so you are feeling a little bit more fresh a little bit more lively make sure the day before you activate your legs you know and just know it's not the be all end all you can you can repeat it you you know your 20 minute number doesn't define you you know people like to have a high one don't get me wrong but (laughs) always take it with a pinch of salt oh yeah i was just quick um point to further that I've always wondered this. So for me personally, when I'm riding, and I know it's the same for a lot of people, that climbing out, climbing out the saddle, they can create a lot more power and it's a lot more comfortable. And for me, I think it's probably 30, 40 watts higher. So would you recommend always carrying out those kind of tests, whatever it is, whether it's a five minute, one minute, 20 minute in the saddle or whatever's comfortable? Because that will, I know for me, it affects the results quite a lot. No, absolutely. I'm quite similar, especially kind of on my short power ranges. They'll be notably higher. It ultimately comes back to what you're trying to assess. If you're going to, let's say, do, you know, so you're going to use five minutes as a proxy for VO2 and you want to assess your five minute power and you know you're going to be doing a lot of hill reps, maybe you should test on a similar sort of terrain that you're going to. So it's correct for that. If you want to then assess it on the flat, you know, make 
sure it's always applicable to where you're going to train. So give it context as such. So it depends what you are trying to do. So obviously a lot of people will go away on the training camps, they'll find a mountain, all of a sudden they're 30 watts higher on their 20 minute power. They adjust the threshold, so they come back and they can't hit the sessions. It's because it's easier to hit the power out on the climb. So always take it with a pinch of salt in context in terms of where you're going to do it. So obviously if you're going to do lots of kind of sprints on the road, practice kind of those those sprint powers if you're going to assess them on similar sort of terrains that you're going to be competing on so just going back to the 20 minute test alex do you (laughs) think it's worth people tapering and like you know having a caffeine gel having a good breakfast really preparing to do that test because i think a lot of people do that get get a decent number or result but then when they come to actually train like i train at five in the morning some days and then that number then is suddenly a lot harder to reach with the zones that I'm trying to train in for threshold work and sweet spot and stuff than if I were doing it having tapered and prepared each time. Is it worth sometimes maybe just taking the test as part of just your routine of your normal stress and your normal day rather than treating it like a special event? Yeah, so you kind of want to give it make it as applicable as possible. So obviously then if you cite yourself up and you're going to do it in the evening, but you do 90% of your training in the morning, there is naturally going to be a bit of difference because your body has its own circadian rhythms. So it takes me a good couple of weeks to get used to training early morning. And it, you know, it feels like hell for the first few times and then it settles in. So if you train in the morning, then you should generally speaking, try and test in the morning. You want to make, ensure that you're training correctly for you. So, you know, normally when I was racing mountain biking, I would typically try and obviously during uni, it's a lot easier. I would try and train and do my hard efforts, generally speaking, when my race times would start. So generally speaking, it's about three, four o'clock in the afternoon, the mountain biking would kick off. So I would try and kind of suit my training towards there. Now, obviously with road, I'm able to get up, you know, if, I'm, if the race is a couple of hours away at five o'clock in the morning to kind of travel over. So a couple of times a week at work, I'd be on the trainer, at, you know, six o'clock in the morning. So it's just kind of it's just giving it context really and taking a step away from understanding why you are testing and how you're going to use it in your training. If you're just going to use it just to show to your mates your 20 minute power, then you might as well pick a nice, you know, 8% climb and 20 minutes uninterrupted, you know, if you want to do that, (laughs) but if you want to get the most out of your training, you know, if you train all the time indoors, go on the turbo and and, and test it. Yeah. The numbers might be lower, but and what, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. You know, your, the best measure of performance is performance itself. You know, so a lot of people, that's the race results. I think with the dawn of Zwift and Zwift racing and things like that, it's turned a lot of people, especially those who are just doing Zwift racing and not racing outdoors and using training. Because it used to be you train indoors for the purpose of getting as fast as possible outdoors. Whereas now you've got a big sector of people who are training indoors just to race indoors. So it's more about the numbers and the bragging and stuff like that, rather than proving it with other skills, like you say, holding wheels and understanding how echelons work and all that sort of stuff that comes into the real world. So it's quite interesting how that dynamics changed. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people forget that bike racing is a skill on its own. It's not just a computer game, which ultimately Zwift is. And, you know, Zwift has its place. It's a fantastic training tool, but it's not, pure bike racing you know it's not the art of knowing how to follow the wheels knowing the right moves when to attack when when not to attack when to counter attack you know which is the right break to be in those are kind of that's the art of bike racing that's what i love and 
seeing those in the race you go some riders just have that natural knack that ability to go right time to go you know and it's and it's different from sport to sport from cyclocross to mountain biking they've all got kind of their own unique quirks and characteristics whereas obviously Zwift racing they'll have that on the different courses but again you don't have that natural feel of you know being that couple of meters off someone's wheel and chasing it down hard you know where you are chewing at the stem you know and you're on that river on the saddle with Zwift you just see this character move further away and you're pedaling harder and going he's still going further away I don't quite understand it and then these power-ups that come out of nowhere you know it's 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 different you know and obviously as the sport's evolving you know we expect changes like that but it's still not true bike racing you know it's a great tool if used correctly you know and if some people just enjoy racing on Zwift then so be it. You know, some people absolutely love it. It's shown by the popularity on the amount of races that are there. Obviously, with COVID going on, you know, it's a bit more competitive. You can still ride with your mates to some sort of extent. Obviously, you don't have the joys of calf stops anymore. But, you know, it's still it's still great. It's a great tool. So the, leading on to that, um, how do you incorporate Zwift into training for your clients and yourself? Or how do you see Zwift as part of... Uh, a cyclist sort of repertoire if they're sort of talking about training for outdoor outdoor events and races and stuff like that so it kind of ultimately depends on what the client wants because obviously they i like them to have as much input to a certain extent as possible to because i want them to feel in control of the training so we kind of work out what they want to do so some like to do one race every now and again and we incorporate that into the training we just make sure we respect the intensity of that event you know, we might use it with someone who wants to do the team time trial side of things because we want to kind of produce kind of a 30 to 40 minute effort. And that kind of gives a nice replication of, you know, something a little bit more rolling without the pure intensity where it's just, you know, on every single climb, it's it's flat out. So it's just using it in the right place at the right time for that person. You know, some people will use it as a wet weather kind of replacement where they just hop on to kind of a group ride. Um, but you know, it can also be a little bit detrimental to training. If you're racing three times a week, just as if you were, you know, in the summer, you can quickly become a bit burnt out and you kind of fall out of love with the sport as such. Cause it, it, it swift racing, I'm sure as most people know, it's, it's quite intense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and if you want to get the most amount of your training, it's using it in a kind of a progressive manner and, you know, swift may have its place in that and it's very individual. Um, but it's just making sure that you are still progressing in your training is is kind of the main thing. So you're ensuring you're still getting optimal recovery, we're still getting the right adaptations, or we're just kind of hitting ourselves silly three times a week without getting too much recovery. Yeah, I think one of the biggest dangers of Zwift is it gives you the 20-minute power and takes 95% of that for your FTP. But as you said earlier, that doesn't include a five-minute blowout where it takes away that anaerobic sort of element of that FTP test. So people go out, yeah. do a 20 minute blast, really motivated because they're doing a race and get quite a high FTP compared to what they can actually manage for workouts and real life. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just making sure there's always context. You know, I generally speaking like numbers to be a little bit pure and under your own effort, under your own motivation, because obviously it's different when you are having to chase, you're having to chew that it's not a consistent effort because ultimately ftp is meant to represent that metabolic steady state and if you're doing an under over style effort it may <laughs> overall underestimate that effort so again then it might lead to kind of slightly incorrect training zones or kind of you might say you're progressing a lot faster than you actually are so or not progressing as much as you should be so it's always it gives a kind of a bit of a baseline with it oh, that's interesting yeah i never thought about how 
sort of that you might do 400 watts at the start and then drop down to 200 for a couple of minutes and then you attack and all that sort of stuff how that affects that 20 minute like you say it's not the same not the same state your muscles are you're in very interesting i suppose okay. it's taking it as a pure average isn't it it's basically like if you went mathematically as a little graph you get all these spikes it's going to level out at something even though it's not really a true consistent power you might just have like a ridiculously high peak at some point and that's going to skew your data for say like five minutes until it actually managed to average out. Mm. Yeah. And depending on the type of racer you might be, so kind of if you're a long time trial, you, you might not be as comfortable with those over under efforts, but if you're a mountain bike and criterium style racer, we kind of got the more kind of type two X type two, a muscle fiber types where you can kind of do those efforts and clear kind of the lactate side of things out your legs more efficiently than you know your time trial riders then it will it will influence that and obviously a mountain bike and cross rider will be used to kind of doing those explosive under over style efforts so again that might influence it as well so it's understanding your rider type so obviously if i swap from mountain bike into road my trainers had a complete different approach almost kind of gone from one polar end to the other you know, from doing short explosive efforts from, you know, 15 seconds to a couple of minutes to now trying to drive out 30 to 60 minute efforts, you know, every three, four hours, you know, because my races are, you know, 120, 140k plus, whereas mountain biking, it's typically an hour and a half. So it's completely different. So you um, you mentioned muscle types then, obviously, depending on different styles of racer, like a crit racer versus a time trial racer. How much would you say, like, is that trainable, the muscle type you're using and sort of what you're naturally better at in that sense? So you will have kind of a genetic profile which will determine how likely you are to kind of produce those muscles. Um, So type 1 is very highly associated with critical power and capillary density around those muscles. So in this terms, you know, critical power is essentially meant to be around functional threshold power. Um, The actual definition of critical power is it's the boundary between the heavy and severe intensity domain uh, which is more of a concept used within physiology and kind of applied sports science it's now kind of making its realms into coaching and kind of like coaching athletes using critical power um, teams like dimension data we're using for their under 23 team the english institute of sport will use it as well to test their athletes um, but we're not as certain kind of on the type two muscle fiber types what's actually associated um with that obviously we know it's kind of explosiveness obviously people that put out big peak powers will generally have kind of larger muscle mass um so that can always influence and to a certain extent you can train anything but your genetics at the end of the day will determine fundamentally what's going to happen to you mm-hmm. so i think one th- one thing i found even like the, t- the period of time I was training regularly for it's even when I was training for like a longer endurance effort and so I wouldn't say it's not something I'm great at I almost struggled mentally to keep up those longer efforts whereas like the a sh- lot shorter ones and like the punchy under over sort of thing I, I managed a lot easier because I was like my, my mind could cope with sort of little effort little rest little effort little rest rather than sort of constant burn almost like, mo- like self-motivation to keep going constantly train sort of a, a longer endurance engine that doesn't surprise me and sometimes you know your efforts you need to think as well your training needs to prepare you for your events um because obviously let's say you know for me for example you know road riding and road racing the efforts are a lot longer so for me doing 230s 320s 240s or even an hour effort is kind of 
mentally okay for me now i'm quite boring i'll literally load my session up onto my wahoo stick a find a good playlist on spotify and just sit there for an hour and just get it done whereas you know i used to think 10 minutes was a long time you know and it does make you mentally more resilient if you end up you know you know you've got 50k to go you're on your own you know you need to have that inner kind of belief and confidence that you can to do it so training isn't just about creating the physiological response it's about making sure that you are confident on the start line as well you know for whatever event whether it's you know a two-minute hill climb to you know the race across america you need to be mentally ready for for that i suppose and that's that's a big thing as well as i remember when i first went into the event i was like my only goal was to win it and sort of um the coach at the time was sort of like I can I can get you to the best state you can be. But what we can't control is who else turns up to it, sort of thing. So I suppose it's the it's um, turning that effort into being you being prepared, like the most prepared you possibly can be, compared to actually like an all out results goal for it. There's always yeah, a bigger fish. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just focusing on the things that you can control because ultimately, what happens on race day is it's outside of your control. But if you can ensure you know your timings are well, you're fueling everything that possibly you can control for a good performance then that's all you can do all you can ask for is the best out of yourself it doesn't matter who turns up but that's irrelevant you don't control that i think that's a massive mental side i've read a book called um how bad do you want it have you heard of that book anyone <laughs> and it, it sort of goes there, there's a, it's all different stories about how mental fortitude overcomes physical issues and barriers and things like that and it's about just if you prepare your process and your belief of just enjoying the training and enjoying the racing, I think it was about, um, it was to do with golf and sort of choking every single time on that final putt, but it's no different to a putt on a putting green or crazy golf than the masters to win it. If your mind it's your mind making it something different, it's still the same motion, the same thing. And if you, if you take that into a race, then you, you know, cycling wise, it means that you're just going to approach it like a training ride and you're going to perform much better because your brain is focusing on just all the things that you know and all those parameters that you're used to rather than panicking, getting nervous, worrying about everyone else because you can't control them Mm. at all. Absolutely. It's about dealing with things that go wrong in a race. You know, if you puncture, you're going to throw your toys out the pram or you're going to go, right, no, can't control, wait for the team car, wait for the neutral service to give you, you know, then ride to the next group and just take it bit by bit. Or you're just going to throw your dummies out and go, right, now nah, I've had enough bike racing, you know, I don't want to buy, ride my bike anymore, et cetera, et cetera. It's that mental resilience to be able to cope with things that go wrong. And, you know, one of the sayings Chris Mack says to me, you know, you can, you can go far with a good head and bad legs, but you can't go far with a bad head and good legs. You know, as, as simple as that is, you can if you're if you're you're not in that effort in that attack in that race it's it's not going to happen you can have the best legs in the world but if you're mentally not believing in yourself it's just going to fall apart How, is that something sort of obviously you've got a massive background in sports science to help with the the physical coaching side of it but is that something you've had to adapt to and you just sort of like leaning on your experience from racing to help coach your like your clients with the mental side of it it's kind of it's a case of quite a few things obviously it's easy to draw up on my experience because i can empathize with the individual and i can relate i understand you know what it's like getting up at five o'clock in the morning or trying to juggle your training around a full-time job or having aspirations and dreams within particular bike races and things not you know 
I've had plenty of races where things just haven't gone my way for one reason or another. Obviously, my undergraduate part of that was, you know, three years of sports psychology. I'm not a psychologist and I don't ever claim to be. So I can help athletes try to relate in terms of try to understand in their performance what might have happened. Wicked. I know that's really good. Yeah, lovely. Um, Seb, your question next. Oh, nonstop. Right. So you, um, you obviously coach the training shop on the 23 team. So you're an ideal person for this one. With sort of um, Tour de France winners, classics winners getting younger and younger. So are the young pros stronger than ever now? Or is it down to different training methods? Are they sort of getting chances earlier in their career with team tactics and stuff? Do you know, what sort of, what's your thoughts on the reason behind that? There are lots of reasons, I think, that talent is coming through. Obviously, physiology and sports scientists are coming a lot more respected in terms of their understanding within their place. Um, so obviously, it's sports science actually has grown a lot in the last 20 years specifically physiologists within cycling and that awareness and understanding from heat acclimatization altitude camps understanding you know intensity domains all that's kind of coming along and feeding itself back into the sports science support and coaching support available for athletes you know and it's it's easy think you know a lot of these younger kids younger riders you know juniors under 16s are getting access to this wealth of information that we have because we're such a data-rich sport you know we can measure everything essentially obviously we can measure live aerodynamics your live cda you've got your power cadence what gear you're in how many gear changes you've made um there's a few things that can measure your kind of angles on the move there's all these things that you can measure and given access to more specific training plans so people are getting on to it a lot earlier but i think a lot of it as well is making sure that the club infrastructure is still there you know if we have athletes come in that are under 14 under 16 we try and encourage them still to get involved within the club skills because that's what training often can't teach is those bike handling skills those cornering skills group handling skills you know it's why i think the surrey league around here used to do a minimum two-day training course for riders get that familiar with riding in a bunch how that group etiquette works how you know if you're on the front you don't just slam your brakes on turn your head you keep in a straight line all those little things so and i think obviously these under development team these development teams as well are coming through um so you've got the under 23 development side of things you know junior teams national governing bodies are kind of generally getting better funded and are having access to the sports science support as well so i think collectively it's making a stronger wave of talent coming through so i think you know that's that's a big part of it really do you think as well the way teams are set up now especially on like the world tour that younger riders can prove themselves early and then sort of jump ahead to doing lead roles and stuff like that rather than being looked after and having to sort of be sort of domestiques for much longer I think it depends. I think it's very much on an individual rider basis. I think quite a few younger riders will aspire to make it to World Tour straight away and think once they've got there, they've made it. But, you know, it's, it takes a couple of years to get yourself established into World Tour. You don't need to rush it. It's, it's, you're still learning. You're still developing. You know, obviously, Pidcock took quite a while of time before he went to Ineos. He had play, you know, he, was, he wasn't in a rush. He could, you know, try all these different races and styles and before kind of having that, you know, development that Ineos will clearly give him. So it's just making sure that riders aren't in a rush. And I think that's one of the mistakes that riders often make. They set their goals, you know, early on, I want to be pro, but don't understand that, you know, you develop the etiquette of professional bike racing, how everything how everything works, how you get on with the swannies, the bike changes, the lifestyle that goes on, you know, the hard graph that ultimately goes in. You know, you may just see the nice 
Instagram style of things of drinking coffee and cafe rides, you know, with the graft of being a bike racer, it's a tough reality. And it's just making sure you don't rush to get there. It's you still got time to learn, you got to develop. And that's what we encourage with our riders that we work with, especially on the ITP program. You know, each race is an opportunity to learn. You know, you need to and you need to learn. So when you when you're coaching the under twenty three team, when obviously we're allowed to race and stuff like that. Are you setting each rider individual goals to do with the team or team goals? Like how do you go to a race with a group of riders? So it's actually the junior team, not the under 23. So you're kind of 16 to 18 year olds. And each goal is I try to get to be athlete driven because ultimately that goal has to come from you. It's no good me suggesting goals for you if you don't believe them if you don't want them so we kind of sit down with each athlete we'll do kind of do a yearly review we'll kind of we'll talk regularly and make sure there's always engagement on both sides of things to understand what that athlete is and the aim of kind of the train sharp junior team was to give the opportunity for riders to develop you know from we didn't specify a specific type of rider such you didn't have to be of certain caliber we would took anyone that kind of wanted to be a part of it. So we kind of like had an A team, B team. We wanted to encourage international trips, try and do a full national calendar and give that experience to the riders so they could get a taste for it and generally then create links with other teams to kind of feed those riders on. So it's all about the development side of things for those riders. So some will have specific goals into them. And if they ask me for their help, you know, where do you think I could be? I'll always make sure I'm honest with them and we'll collectively work together. So it's always kind of athlete driven. Because ultimately, that's my job is to get the most and what they want. That's cool. Yeah, wicked. Um, Harry, do you want to do the follow up question now instead of the it later on? I think that's quite a good one. The biggest mistakes one. Yeah, I was going to say that kind of relates well, doesn't it? About what would you say the biggest mistakes are that younger riders, maybe juniors, make or people that are new into racing, into our training. So especially kind of for like juniors and youth riders, it's emulating the pros. It's trying to copy what the pros are doing, you know, trying to do these big, long hours, big bike rides, trying to kind of get hung up on what numbers, you know, the pros are doing and trying to take a step back. You know, power is just a tool and it doesn't define you as a bike rider. So it's trying to just keep them to step away, ensure that they still feel the effort. So, you know, sometimes when a power meter breaks, they're like, oh, no, I can't train. It's like, no, no, you can't feel you can still ride your bike just because your battery's flat isn't going to stop you from riding. <laughs> it's just always to try and keep them in check kind of with the effort, what we're actually trying to do. And also to try, try to create it as fun as possible to make sure they enjoy it. Cause if they don't enjoy those efforts, those training sessions, they're not going to stick to it kind of long term. And it's trying to ensure that they still, you know, have a bit of freedom as well. If they want to go off for a bike adventure with the mates, you know, that's no problem. We'll fit it into the program. There's always kind of a lot of engagement from both sides to kind of, ensure that's happening and keeping the riders motivated especially kind of through through covid and everything like that that's been going on you know with no racing we've had lots of little mini goals they've been doing like the local tt loops just to keep them check or you know they want to get that tt position dialed in you know been working really kind of closely with that and kind of for people that are just getting into the sport is you know you're going to get quite fast relatively quickly it's just not to take it too too serious just keep enjoying it you know and and keep that fun in the sport and then obviously get a coach like train shop I would, you know i would highly <laughs> recommend that you know just thought i'd get that in there while i'm here um, <laughs> would you, know, you just not to take it too serious yeah i don't know i mean seb's nailed that haven't you seb you're that's that's your mantra oh 
I'm, I'm going very much for like talent over hard work and was waiting for the talent. <laughs> Alex, would you say, because I've seen on your, um, the train sharp um, Insta stories, you do questions and things like that. And I always see, there's always a couple of questions clearly for some junior riders about this is my FTP or this is my five minute power. Are there sort of rough benchmarks for certain ages for those things to know if a rider is going to be, progressing in their career in the right direction for pro teams and stuff or is it always just completely dependent on physiology age puberty all those sorts of things so i mean we've got our own kind of normative data on juniors but again that doesn't what you capture at youth junior under 23 doesn't always translate into the pro team obviously the things that we can't capture is that attitude that determination so yeah there are things that might give an indication which you know just because it's correlated doesn't mean there's causation with it so it's just kind of taking things a step back people get hung up on just because your 20 minute number might be really good doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be approached that whole that's why we have our inspired talent package it's you know trying to get that right into the best possible position to gain a professional contract so it's not just getting them as strong as possible it's creating them as mentally strong as possible to get them self-reliant can they cope in all these sorts of situations can they network well do they present themselves well will they work well as a team are they good on social media it's all those other things that need to be taken into account you know some riders might get into the sport late you know i only came in i think it was about 16 when i came into the sport so you kind of i kind of missed that youth and um under 14 sort of window and you know some people will just naturally progress through the kind of the talent systems that are there some won't some need you know our help and which is what we kind of thrive to do we're talking about new people coming into the sport and mistakes they make i think that's a fair one though they care too much about equipment and uh they're done in by marketing all the time Oh, yeah, that's a bit... Well, I think it was was British Cycling banned for under-16s. I mean, don't quote me on this, but 38 mil was the maximum rim depth that you could have. You know, and you were seeing kids on these bike races. You know, if the parents can afford it, that's cool for them. But, you know, if they're equipped with a Colonago lightweights and DI2, if they make it onto a pro team, they're probably going to get worse kit than that. You know, I was in a fortunate position where, you know, my dad supported me completely throughout my cycling but he never went overboard in terms of you know the kit and as youth I was still racing on a bike with Soro because it changed gear and I didn't need anything else you know it wasn't until you know I was with train shop that I had a bike with full Ortega onto it you know and even racing as um elite you know one year I treated myself but I still only had full XT throughout I mean it was XT DI too but that's not the point you know because I didn't you know we'll we, we leave the electronics yeah. shifting on the all, mountain bike side of things <laughs> i know you know i mean my student my student overdraft took a big hit for that so <laughs> you know thank you hey <laughs> i say my, my bike's never been as nice as it was at uni you know and kit isn't gonna make you the best rider obviously tt's is a slightly different area where there's a big factor of kind of kit these days but it almost takes away the purity of bike racing and what it kind of ultimately is mm. you know with deep sections and all this latest kit and then you know parents are under pressure because you know they want to have their kids to have the best but when you know little jimmy's racing on lightweights it's kind of it's difficult so it's just keeping everything into check and i think that's where the club seems quite good as well because most parents will kind of get similar sort of things to the other parents you know i was really fortunate i grew up um in the Midlands with Litchfield City Cycling Club and we had Kerber Sprint Track. So we had sessions on there three, four times a week, you know, teaching all those 
you know race skills it wasn't until i think this year where i i i you know i actually bought my own first set of um deep sections you know i've been lucky i've been you know given pairs of wheels but it's the first time i you know my paypal credit took a nice hit you know you know i was lucky enough to kind of get a bit of a discount on hump from the guys at hunt um on a nice set of you know 50 mil carbon wheels and you know for me they are absolutely fantastic like you know i'm not good enough to be spending three thousand pounds on a set of wheels i mean you know i might like to think i am some days but my bank account definitely doesn't think that but you know it's just keeping things in in check you know i think and they make a wicked sound loud loud that's the best bit to be honest about them well <laughs> It's interesting because people spend, you know, someone's buying like a Tarmac SL7, that's what, seven and a half, eight thousand pounds. And if you compared that to how much sort of five years of proper pro coaching goes, if someone's goal is to get as good as possible, what's going to get you more gains? An SL7 that is, you know, is not much different than a CAD 12, if we're completely honest, at a, in a bunch race around Goodwood or something like that. Or, you know direct weekly training and things like that so it's just interesting where people put absolutely you know when you know one of those purchases it's a, it's a one-off increase you know tr- you know investing in a coach it's a continual investment in yourself where you'll see repeated gains you know you know some people may struggle with the fact that coaching isn't something tangible tangible you know you can't touch these wheels but you can feel those training gains and once someone really kind of dives into that process and understanding okay this is why we're doing what we're doing and start seeing those performance increases you know month on month year on year then they really kind of believe it. and that's why we keep our clients for such a long time because they absolutely love it you know it's our goal isn't just to make you fast once it's to continuously get you faster you know if you break it down you go to work you have a cup of coffee every day you know a couple of pounds here it it works out pretty much similar to our training costs for brand you know we do charge a premium for our plans but then we coaching is our full-time job so where else can you get a coach that will respond to your message instantly throughout the day regular feedback have a sports science team so it's me connor you know both qualified up to master's level in in physiology there's nowhere else where you can get that sort of level of understanding and support you know a train shop you don't just get you know let's say you went to have me as a coach you don't just get me you get me john you get chris you get connor we work effectively as a team you know and like obviously in in covid we're all working from home but normally we work through our hq you know where else does a coaching company all work together where you know we have a problem we bounce these ideas off at each other you know, and that's that's what you're paying for. You're paying for our expertise, our qualifications, our experience, our understanding to get the most out of you at the end of the day. You know, our kind of mantra is minute we unlock your potential that you have. Yeah, and like you say, it's and as Seb mentioned earlier, it's the it's not just pedaling on a bike, it's everything comes within that, the mental side, the preparation, the nutrition, you know, lots so many things that people do just look over. They buy an SL seven. Do, do a lot of Zwift and then turn up for their first race and then real, don't understand why they haven't quite won and think it's because their FTP isn't big enough. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And a coach isn't just someone that sets your training plan. It's like an agony aunt. It's a friend. It's a sports scientist. It's someone that you can bounce ideas off, try to understand things. You know, where else can you have, you know, someone with over 50 years of racing experience collectively that can help you understand that race or that course, why things may have gone that way. You know, if you're on your own, you might not have that, 
ability to fully understand and conceptualize what's actually going on. Like with a lot of my kind of the younger riders, I'll always get them to note three things that they think that they've done well. And one thing that they want to improve of and trying to encourage them to write that down. So there's lots of these mini goals in there, understanding what things they can improve on to help kind of performance. Because if you focus on all those things that can help it, you're more likely to succeed. Whereas if you just focus on you know being first your kind of window of focus becomes very narrow and you might you know i've i've been in there been in the break i think it was the beck road race or a couple of years ago i got myself into the break you know i wanted to do well in that race and i was too busy suffering to eat and one of the big things about you know endurance performance you've got to fuel adequately and if you don't like i did i went straight out the back (laughs) you know we had over a two minute lead and i went you know, I think they were closing up by the time I'd finished, you, you know, it's, oh, I finished. I mean, the best story I had, it was the junior, this is going a while ago. And this is, makes me almost feel old, which it shouldn't. And it's quite scary, but it was the first junior national road race of the series called Cadence. Um, and I had a nice climb into it. And somehow, don't, I still don't know to this day why after 8K, I was off the front, you know, no idea why. And I was so excited to be in the break. I didn't eat a thing. And I, I may have drank a <laughs> bottle or two. My dad was in the feed zone. He wasn't expecting me to be in the break. So he missed me completely a couple of times. And I ended up just going pop straight out of the back, straight past the Gruppetto, the main bunch, straight past the Gruppetto. And they this time they were actually packing up. My dad was waiting at the start line. I was zigzagging up the climb and my lowest gear, considering the first time we went up the climb, you know, your big ring mid block. And, you know, you've got sometimes... You know, that was a learning opportunity. I mean, multiple learning opportunities in that sense. But, you know, it's, you know, I reflect on these and, you know, I might have questioned, oh, I'm not strong enough. But actually, looking back at it, I didn't eat enough. <laughs> you know, <it's> silly. <laughs> yeah. And it just comes down again to how your FTP on that day changed dramatically and went probably halved because you didn't eat, <laughs> not because you suddenly lost half your F- FTP. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, and you have to pick be as high as you know you want it to be. But if you don't eat, you know, after two and a half hours, you, you, you're going to know about it. You know, it's a lot of the guys um, when I used to work with uh, do my undergraduate time with the auction doing side of things. We work on specific you know nutrition plans in terms of getting them used to what they were going to eat in the race, get used to training. You know, and I ended up doing back when I was racing a talk a twelve hour, and I wanted to you know try and understand what goes through their heads during these right races and sometimes it's not it's not a pretty place to be doing after six hours knowing you've still got six hours to go and you're on for the podium so it's you know there's someone two minutes in front of you someone a couple of minutes behind you and you've been going for six hours and you think oh that's a long time they realize you're halfway through now that's, um, you know you, you, i mean you must have heard this jason english the endurance racer yeah. so he's in a, people don't know this is most people um he was like six or seven times world champ, champion for the 24-hour solo mountain bike racing yeah, he's an Australian bloke. I think he was in uh, like a few years ago. He lost his title. He won every single edition of it. But he used to just train on random foods just to see if it was like beneficial. He'd be like, just do a whole six-hour block purely on black coffee. That's all he did. Yeah. And he'd not yeah. only be like, right, we'll try this one on just potatoes, just to see if there was like some golden fuel that worked for him. And it's understanding what you like as an individual as well. And this is where, you know, a coach comes in that you can, they can share their expertise and experiment on certain things that, you know, you may or may not get on with in racing, especially for kind of that ultra endurance stuff. You've got to have almost something that you're going to look forward to. You know, I was quite lucky. I was, I was sponsored by, I was on the talk mountain bike team and, you know, I got a similar amount of talk product throughout the race, but you know, I mean, 
eating gels and bars for 12 hours doesn't play that well on your stomach but you know the, the energy products were nice enough that i was more than happy to smash them down constantly but you know if you're doing 12 out 24 hours or more you, you know you need to find something that you know enjoy whether it's you know piece of homemade flapjack or you know harry bow which is salt vinegar good crisps you know it's it's that balance between what's good in terms of you know performance but what's good in terms of morale and it's always that kind of balance between the two especially for long endurance stuff i mean we, we used to just take all the samples from the talk stands so like we're essentially sponsored by them <laughs> to be fair, i used to work a couple of the shows and we did we did people did get through a lot of samples through there it was either that or it was um at 2012 it used to be the cliff stand where they used to have just like, like massive bowls of cliff blocks uh, that was one of my favorite courses 2412 i absolutely love that course absolutely love it actually that that brings up a lot i was, I was looking up our heads ahead on um roots and rain it's not pretty at all um we've, we've, <laughs> we've been in two races together you were racing elite and i was in sport and um your your average lap time you're a minute and a half ahead of me every time around Newnham. so Right, should we do two more questions? Yeah, go for it. Do you want to go with your one, Seb? Okay, so obviously at the moment, not much racing going on. So I'm guessing this is for a rider that wants to be racing. They want to be, I guess, sort of getting when it does eventually start. Who knows what that means? Could be in a month's time. What sort of training should they be doing at the moment? Uh, we've had we've actually had that quite a few on our question side of things and again you know the quick answer is it depends but it depends on kind of lots of things really you know where what sort of training you've been doing you kind of your training experience what sort of goals are you being so I'll, I'll take a time trial for example obviously we knew last year that they came back kind of relatively quickly in comparison to kind of the other forms of racing obviously this year is still a bit unknown but hopefully you know things should kind of resemble a bit more normality by the end of the year but, you know this could be an opportunity to actually extend kind of that endurance side of things that really working on driving that threshold even spending a fair bit more time in your time trial position to kind of looking at all the things that might influence kind of performance so if you're kind of racing criteriums it might be simple things as introducing your training get used to being on the drops you know rather than being sat up right on the hoods and the tops actually trying to mimic that position a little bit more so the kind of lots of the other things where you can make quite substantial kind of improvements um you know like i said in your position without too much more effort and sort of things you know you can try and push another block out kind of just having a little bit more variety in that sort of thing so it's always make sure that you're always still kind of progressing rather than trying to kind of get stagnant ultimately so you, the main thing what you don't want to be doing though is kind of rushing into the intensity now obviously there should hopefully be a bit of a kind of a window where once we know that's racing is going to be kind of coming on but kind of familiarizing yourself okay if you know how long does it take you to kind of respond to that speed work just so you're always kind of ready to get back into kind of racing and everyone's going to be super keen and everyone will be in that same position but obviously if you're kind of into criteriums you might just want to work on a little bit of leg speed obviously time trial you'd be want to working on kind of getting that position absolutely dialed from kind of aerodynamic tweaks to familiarizing yourself with that position you know mountain biking just get used to being out in all weathers try different tires out and use this time to experiment and continuously having a bit more fun with that that early season kind of race pressure on yourself so you can always use each situation to your advantage like i said earlier each opportunity is it's a place to learn 
and you can use that to your kind of own advantage rather than just doing panic training as such you know this is again the benefits of having a coach it's someone that you can bounce ideas off or oh i read this this is a good idea or i thought about this this is where you can bounce ideas off and the coach can help ground you as well it gives you a different perspective that you might not necessarily be aware of because obviously in training we often do the things that we like to do and avoid the things that we don't like you know for me I like short short hard intense efforts and hated long efforts but now I know the benefit in terms of my own kind of racing performance that those are the efforts that I need to be doing those kind of longer rides and placing those efforts towards the back end of those endurance rides as well to kind of develop that fatigue resistance so it's all it, it depends <laughs> ultimately that's, that's a good point very good point that it's Again, it's people get very caught up in just trying to make that number bigger rather than actually looking at the longevity of their training and enjoying it. And, you know, we're, we're not trying to be professional mountain bikers. I don't want to ruin your dreams, Harry, but you're not going to make it now, mate. And it's just... A case I mean, I've only ridden my mountain bike about four times <laughs> in the last four years. It's cross is what I'm going to be professional at, Sam. You don't understand. Yeah, it's like, why, <laughs> why did you get into it in the first place? You know, it's because it's fun and you enjoy it. So the second it's not fun, then you're probably not doing it right. You've got to enjoy the process. Otherwise, why are you sitting on the train and stuff like that? And finding the reason to... You know, I think that's why people find it hard because at the moment they haven't got a reason sometimes. They haven't got that that race or that goal because it's all so uncertain but it's just a case of enjoying the training and the feeling of getting better and improving yourself i think if you can nail that then everything else will just come easy yeah it's about enjoying the process and i think this is where it might have helped push riders on a little bit more because they've had to kind of move away from the expectations from judging their own performance based on races but actually seeing and investing themselves in terms of the training and performance side of things you know everyone's got their own different way of getting into cycling you know i got in because of the smoking ban that came in in june 2008 you know i wasn't a heavy smoker but my dad was and he ended up ultimately putting on a bit of weight he was like right the ban came in it's like stop smoking put on a bit of weight and he started riding his mountain bike and he raved to me how tall this boardwalk was and how gnarly and sketchy it was. So I was like, <laughs> all right, if you get me a bike, I'll come out with you. And this boardwalk was about that far off the ground. No word of a lie. <laughs> but, you know, we, and we were hooked and, you know, it created a good relationship between me and my dad. We still, you know, talk. He still tries to ride a bit. You know, he doesn't ride as much as he'd like these days, but, you know, he's getting there. And, you know, for me, it's that sense of freedom. You know, some days I will, you know, more towards the summer, I will just do a day where I'll just ride my bike. I'll find somewhere that I want to go to and go ride, you know, whether it's yeah. been, you know, part of my events have been bikepacking. You know, I tried to do Tour de Mont Blanc last year. We did King Alfred's Way. No, I did Tour de Mont Blanc two years ago. Tried to do Tour de Mont Blanc two years ago. Did King Alfred's Way um, in October last year. You know, for me, it's just being out on your bike. But I also love the absolute competitive side of things. And it's it's that balance of everything. Of ultimately, why you love to ride your bike. And you need to sometimes remind yourself of that. Yeah, that's so nice that your dad got you into cycling and he had that impact on your whole life. Like as a parent, I think that's like the you, you know the ultimate goal for your child to be inspired by you in that sort of way. That's that's a really cool little story. That and that, yeah, I was really lucky because my dad wasn't pushing the sport. He's like, if you want to go to a race, let me know and I'll take you. If not, I I won't. Do you know, and he, he, there's always a couple of races where you know he'll remind me of you know the fact that I didn't want to go, but if he kind of said, come on, should we just, I'm going to race. Do you, want, do you want to just come along anyway? And I absolutely loved racing that day. You know, we could still go out riding together for a cafe run. He might, you know, sit on my wheel a little bit more. I hate <laughs> me for saying it, but 
you know I still went on a training camp with him about two three years ago with you know my home cycling club and it's still a great way of you know that relationship my brother cycles not as much as he wants to or actually even wants to do it in a minute but you know he had what I would consider more natural talent than I did he just didn't you know enjoy it as much as I did as such and for me it shaped my whole university side of things my kind of career choice you know my, the questions that I wanted to ask as a junior you know I'm only starting to kind of start to investigate with certain research topic areas that I'm interested in you know it shaped absolutely everything for me from you know simply a smoking ban that came in yeah that's crazy it sounds a little bit like you and your brother Seb you've got the the talented one who doesn't bother and then the one who works really hard and is really bloody good <laughs> I, I i'll say that ben is still talented though and i'm sure alex is extremely talented too so it's not all about just hard work from you boys yeah. <laughs> oh well give alex, me, give me was... number, we'll go for a ride together me and your brother <laughs> yeah effortlessly be amazing without any training um yeah, alex, yeah that, that sounds like my brother amazing. it's annoying um no yeah, no worries guys i hope you kind of enjoyed that. it if you want me on again anything if you you know any questions or anything i'm always happy to get involved in things and share the knowledge of coaching because i do feel out there at the minute there's a lot of bad coaching i would say there's a lot of coaches. there's a lot there's a lot of yeah. coaches and you know some, some are good you know i'm not trying to hear to slate any other coaches um their position as such or are just out to make a few quid you know, and it's this while we do it's a full time job, you know, we fully invest ourselves into our clients and our athletes, you know, obviously that's why we charge a premium, but you know, I want to get the absolute best out of my guys. You know, I'm sure everyone else does, but we're not here to just, you know, create random generic plans for riders or make a session look interesting, you know, with thirty seconds here, twenty six seconds there and thirteen seconds and half one of this and you know, we ensure that everything is specific for that individual. You know, and the more I can share information about it, kind of the better. You know, I could spend hours on little things like FTP and my more preferred topic of critical power and why I think you'll see critical power popping up in in future coaching in, you know, five years or so where it starts to kind of have a lot of momentum because it's mathematically defined. It's got a lot of physiological underpinning from the last hundred years worth of research. But now it's only just start emerging in in cycling. Is, is the, I mean, is, is, you, I, want, I want a quick answer to this. I imagine you've gone for a long time. <laughs> is there a way, an easy way to measure critical power or is it actually a bit more involved because it's more useful? Um, It's just as simple. You know, you can do, you need a short range power and kind of a longer range power. So maybe two and 12 or three and 14. And then you've got to do some maths with it. That's where the kind of the complicated side kind of comes in a, a little bit more. So you can you can run it um it'd probably be a bit more difficult to explain um but it's an easy way to kind of assess so with critical power you get two parts to it so you get critical power which separates the heavy and the severe intensity domains um so the severe intensity domain you've got kind of three there's three physiological constructs which will happen obviously blood lactate will increase until you go pop um and vo2 will rise until you go pop um it it won't kind of steady out it won't go to steady state in the heavy intensity domain blood lactate will rise and kind of steady off your vo2 will eventually kind of steady but you'll have what you call a slow component um and then obviously in the moderate intensity domain it will become steady state so it's kind of doable all all day long but the other component you get is w prime 
And that's a finite amount of work that can be done above critical power. So you can measure it in joules and um, we'll work it out into kilojoules. And it can work so you can create a power curve based on that information. And well, one of the reasons we start to use it is it gives you kind of your aerobic parameters and then kind of that fatigue resistance capability. So I use that in the sense of how long you can go above your threshold power for a particular power is essentially what it's measuring. And it allows us to see a response in training. So whether that aerobic size being driven up or actually if you've been getting too intense, that kind of W prime might increase and see how that relates to it. So interestingly, you can you can model it. My MSc dissertation was done on modeling the recovery of W prime. So if you could individualize specific efforts and then run it through race analysis as well to give a better understanding of kind of what's happened during the race, especially for kind of those intermittent sports where it's quite explosive. Um, so it's quite it's it's an interesting area that's got a lot of weight behind it at the minute. So expect a lot of stuff in the next five years or so. I think it's definitely something we should look at. I, I would personally love to do it all again. If we if you're happy to come back on, Alex, um, you know, in a few weeks or oh, any time, you know, whenever you're free, I think that that's a really good main topic to sort of go into because you know if that's if you're saying that that's sort of the future of how we're going to be training and you know, all those sorts of things. I think that's a good thing to to chat about and get, get some more in-depth look at. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's one of the reasons we still do our kind of lab-based testing rather than these gimmicky things. Um, probably not the right word, gimmicky, but mm. there's a lot of other things which hide behind the science, um, which may claim to be the best things in sliced bread. You know, and a lot of it is marketing and it's, Again, it always comes back to the athlete and understanding why we are testing, what we are testing for, and how we're going to use it. Because essentially, power is a tool, and it's you know you don't go, you know, to the electrician and ask him what tools you've got. You just know that they are going to use it well. It's where you know people ask us, "Oh, am I going to use this polarized approach? Oh, am I going to use sweet spots approach?" You know, that's a question that we could spend hours debating on, and you just trust that they are going to use the right tools necessary for you to get the job done. Essentially. You know, it's and gone. it's what you know. You can overcomplicate it if you want, but you know, train shop. We're you know, we're science driven. You know, we're evidence informed. You know, it's a term that I always kind of got taught at university, rather than being like evidence based. So we're not basing all our training off just research. We're using kind of all the experience that we have and understanding the science as well. Because again, if you look on any forums or something, people start quoting research papers. You people will just pop up the abstract and may, might not have the ability to fun, fundamentally go through a research paper and understand actually what they've done, all the science terminology behind it, the statistics that they've done, and you can come to very different conclusions on it. You know, you do get prominent papers that on paper sound really good, but actually if you dive into it, then it might not be as kind of clear cut. And that's why, you know, ChangeUp has people like me and Connor in there. To t- take them apart and actually study them properly, because it's a it's a skill in itself. It's a jo- you know a job role in itself to be able to look at those rather than just look at the headlines and the synopsis and take massive uh, opinions from that. <laughs> yeah, and it's you know it's why we you know keep everything trying you know keep it simple you know and we try not to hide behind the science you know so I like our lab testing. It's a very well known profile in terms of you know the lactate profile that we'll do the vo2 max assessment with a with the uh, maximum aerobic power as well in our lab it's all you know when a client comes in that everything's explained to them they get a full in-depth 10 page report explaining what everything is we don't you know just say what these numbers are we kind of relate it back to performance and this is why a lot of times we have people come to us rather than let's say university because we've got that cycling experience a term we call ecological validity so we give it 
meaning in the real world rather than a nice clean lab. You know, as part of the Inspired Talent program, we'll have riders do a full assessment prior to starting with us, but we'll also take them up to Fell Beacon as well. And we'll get them to go up as fast as they can, you know, so we can see actually how they ride a bike. You know, when you get out of the saddle, do you pause for a second or two and go backwards or do you continually drive it kind of forwards? You know, when you know that finish line is in 10, 15 seconds time, do you absolutely empty the tank or do you just blow your doors off? You know, we get to understand the rider like that. You know, it's always balancing that world of science and reality ultimately you know that's why we're you know quite if not one of the best coaching companies available you know i am biased in that but you know i truly believe i truly believe that you know and i wouldn't be here if i didn't well the results and the clients that you have sort of you know they speak for themselves so i don't think uh anyone's in any doubt about those sorts of things i think that's a very good Absolutely. place for us to finish on um um hopefully we'll be able to do one again very soon anytime um, guys anytime yeah, thank Lovely. you very much. Yeah, cheers. Uh, I hope you guys found it useful as well and not too boring. Oh, no, no totally. Yeah, I, I love I'm that. I love that now. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, wicked. Well, thanks very much for your time, Alex, and we'll speak to you again soon. Fantastic, guys. I look forward right. to it. All right, then, guys. Take care. Cheers. cheers. See you later. Bye. Cheers. Bye. 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 Bye.